This is Steve Stein. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. As promised, we're on a mission to deliver to you a series of conversations that show how COVID-19 is reshaping the world and Asia specifically. Prior to the outbreak, the greatest force in this part of the world was China. Its awesome 40-year sprint to rise from economic backwater to international superpower is the stuff of legend. For the longest time, it was a tale of economic prowess and an apparent embrace of free market enterprise, a sign, perhaps, of China's joining the Economic League of Nations. But appearances can be deceiving. The Middle Kingdom may have a plan of its own. The past few years suggest as much. Under the leadership of Xi Jinping, China is flexing some newfound geopolitical muscle marked by ambitious plans that speak of global expansion and smack of hubris. Two programs in particular, the Belt and Road Initiative and Made in China 2025, have received the lion's share of attention. But there are dozens of others that reveal China's newfound ambitions. From infrastructure to artificial intelligence, China is on the march. Into this vacuum comes my guest, Michael Schumann. He's a longtime journalist with The Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine and author of several books. His latest, Superpower Interrupted. The title says it all. China, according to Michael, sees this as the moment to reclaim its rightful place. The last 200 years are little more than a blip on the screen, a momentary adjustment in the great arc of history. All hail the Middle Kingdom. Depending on whether you buy this perspective or not, it doesn't bode well for the future of China and the West. Exceptionalism breeds resentment, and that, no matter how you look at it, is a tough way to build any relationship. Michael Schumann, thank you for joining us from Beijing by phone. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I've just uh, finished your book, and uh, it's fascinating, Michael. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful telling of Chinese history. Um, we're going to get into this right now, but I guess I'd like to open with you uh, first telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. I'm a, a journalist who's, uh, who's been in Asia, actually, since 1996. Uh, I started in Asia with the Wall Street Journal in Korea, and uh, later joined Time Magazine, where I, I did regional uh, economics and other issues from Hong Kong. Uh, the, uh, this book is actually my third book. I, I, I did a history of uh, Asia's economic miracle, and I also wrote a book on Confucius a few years ago. Uh, so I guess I'm a, a journalist slash uh, amateur historian. What's the fascination with China? Why China? Of all the different topics you've covered and breached, uh, why hone in here? Because China is what happens. China, what happens in China, is really going to shape a lot of what happens in the whole world over the next, I probably several generations. I mean, at least fifty years, a hundred years. I mean, the rise of China is really the story of the future. And uh, if you don't know about China, then you're not going to be able to keep track of of, of what's coming. Uh, and I feel that a lot of people around the world, when I read the newspapers and I see what's being discussed, actually really don't know that much about China. Uh, I don't blame them. It's there, you often don't get a lot of, a lot of choices uh, at U.S. schools, universities, to really study China unless you really seek it out. Uh, and uh, I think people really need, need to know more if they want to know about, about the world, what the world is going to look like in the 21st century. And, and the title of the book, can you share that and why you chose that title? The title of the book is uh, The Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World. Uh, 
the reason I chose that, I'll start with actually the, the subtitle, uh, the the Chinese history of the world. The idea was to to tell world history through a, a Chinese lens or from a Chinese perspective. And because I think when when we in in the U.S. and Europe and in, in the West, when we read history, we we read kind of a, a world history through uh, our from our our own perspective that is very focused on what happened with the West and the world and what happened with the rise of, of the West. So, you know, we go back to ancient Greece and Rome and then through the development of Europe and then, the, then you know, the, the U.S., that kind of thing. And, and other parts of the world obviously play a, a role, but they tend to be something like, you know, side characters. Um, not everybody in the world sees history that way. So this got me thinking that the Chinese really have their own version of world history. And a different kind of world history that means more to them in the development of their their society and their culture. And they learn different things in school and different events have meaning to them that don't have meaning to us in Europe and say at least not the same meaning and uh, vice versa. So, you know, while like the rise of Rome figures, you know, immensely in, China, in, in Western history, in Chinese history, not so much. So when you start seeing... The world through the, through the, from this perspective, it, it looks very, very different. And then the, the main title, uh, Superpower Interrupted, was kind of a, 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 a shorthand way into, into what that Chinese history looks like, which is that the Chinese always saw themselves as being a great power and think they deserve to be a great power. And that got, unfortunately, that historical narrative got, unfortunately, interrupted uh, about two, two, 200 years ago. Uh, and now they want to restore their historical net, their, their their usual historical narrative. So, how different are the two perspectives, West from China itself? Well, I I think from the the Chinese perspective, uh, you know, the West is something of an interloper uh, into a, into their own world. You know, in, when we're when we're in Washington and London, there's all this talk about okay, how do we how do we uh, uh, bring China into our world? How do we fit China into the current global system, which is really a creation of, of the U.S. and European powers? And I don't really think the Chinese see it that way, because for the, for the Chinese, the dominance of the West over the last 200 years or so is, you know, really for them a few pages and an incredibly long historical epic. So they they see the West as basically newcomers into a world that a world in which China was always a very dominant power uh, for the vast majority of uh, of its history. So when you see things from from that perspective, what's going on today in the world looks quite different. You, there's you don't have an emerging. Shall we talk about China as an emerging market or a developing country that's rising? The Chinese don't see it that way. The Chinese. See this as something of a restoration of the norm. We were always a big economy. We were always a great society. We were always a dominant political and cultural force. And you know, maybe we've had a rough time over the last few decades or 150 years or so. But that's the aberration. And and now we want to get back to what we we always were and we think we should be. Michael, talk to me about Chinese exceptionalism. We're all too familiar with the American version. How is it different for China? 
It, it, it's interesting. In some respects, it's very similar with China. Um, the, the Chinese have perceived themselves as a superior civilization, not necessarily a superior people in the ethnic sense. Uh, that's not the right way of thinking about it, but a, a superior civilization. And we see this in, in writing that goes back to actually some of the earliest texts that, that we have. So you're talking about going, going back, you know, 2,500 years, uh, where the Chinese, when they were writing about themselves versus other people, they always painted their, their civilization basically as civilization. And if you weren't a part of Chinese civilization, then you were, well, by definition then, not civilized uh, or barbarian, which is a commonly used term in translations of Chinese uh, texts. And that idea basically persisted until the, the, the modern age, and it very much influenced the way uh, chi the Chinese dealt with other peoples and, and what Chinese foreign policy looked like, where they, they tended to see the world as a hierarchy with the Chinese on top and everybody else was somewhere else, but you know, beneath them, kind of like a pyramid. And more than that, they thought that their civilization, and this is where it gets similar to the U.S., that their civilization had a transformative effect that it was so, it was so wonderful and so superior to other civilizations and other cultures that you would you could transform people from barbarism to civilization through Chinese culture, and the Chinese would use that term transform. And when you think about how the U.S. feels today about itself, that the that the U.S. feels that it has a superior political social system and that the world would be a happier place if everybody was basically a, a democratic. Uh, you know, free market society, uh, very much based on individual liberties, uh, and that you know the idea of, of you know the the city on the hill kind of idea. So in 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 that respect, you have right now you have two civilizations coming together, each seeing themselves in in a similar in a similar which have seen themselves in a similar fashion. To to what degree, Michael, um, did China's perception of itself? change with the elimination of the dynastic order in the early 20th century? Yeah, that's a great question, because that actually influenced a lot of what's going on today. Uh, the re one of the big reasons why I felt that the, the Chinese historical narrative was interrupted with the confrontation with the West is because previously, this idea that the Chinese had about the, the exceptionalism of their, their civilization had survived tremendous amounts of political change and upheaval and uh, invasions and disasters. You know, the, China was invaded by the Mongols and, and uh, uh, other, other peoples. And we went through periods of civil war and tremendous political chaos. But through all of that, this idea that of Chinese superiority survived. Then you had the confrontation with the West. And the West saw Chinese civilization differently, where in the past, other peoples were, were very likely to adopt certain, at least certain aspects of Chinese civilization once they became involved with the Chinese. The Westerners were kind of like, no, no, you guys are backward and our civilization is superior. And as the Qing dynasty, the last dynasty, weakened in the 19th century, and Chinese themselves began to look around and say, okay, well, what happened? Why is this happening? 
their conclusion was, well, our civilization is not modern. And if we're going to be modern and we're going to be successful in the future, we have to change our civilization and we have to adopt Western civilization. So you reached a period in the late 19th century, early 20th century, where uh, reformers and scholars uh, and revolutionaries started to think that Chinese tradition was the problem and that Chinese, certain aspects of Chinese civilization had to be purged away, wiped away, in order for China to restore itself. And that's when you had an inflood of Western ideas, everything from, of course, communism, uh, ideas about capitalist economic systems, constitutions, uh, but also about what the family should look like. All, all kinds of ideas kind of went flowing in into China that those reformers at the time saw as being a better choice for China going forward. So how do they hold these two things to be true, Michael? On the one hand, uh, to modernize, adopt some of these Western notions, some of these Western processes and systems, but at the same time, uphold the pride they have in their own ancient past and the dynastic order. You know, on, on the one hand, you, you've got them saying that uh, uh, they are almost offended at the very suggestion that uh, the new communist system has anything to do with the dynastic order, yet somehow prideful and proud of the fact that uh, that's their heritage. Well, you're, you're, you're touching on one of the great internal conflicts going on in, in China right now, because what you see the government doing and uh, especially in recent years, is trying to reestablish this connection with the past in a way that it hadn't beforehand. Remember, the, you know, the communist movements are all about destroying the old and building a, a, a new society. So here you have a communist movement that, that, had, that had always been kind of their mantra. Now, try, now, now basically trying to switch this and, and saying, you know what, Chinese civilization is actually the, the core of, of the nation. Uh, and they're trying to restore ideas about um, Confucianism, uh, traditional Chinese culture. The President Xi Jinping talks about it all the time. He's constantly quoting Chinese philosophy, Chinese moral precepts. And they're also trying to subtly link the current government with the past strong, with that, with that, that previously strong, dominant, dynastic China. They don't, of course, are not using the language that they're a new dynasty. They're not doing any, anything like that. But they're trying to paint the government now as a successor, something of a successor state that's going to restore China on the world stage to its former greatness that it had under the dynasties. This so, is a difficult thing. This is a very difficult thing because when you look at, of course, people on an average basis haven't been educated in this. Uh, they're still looking, you know, they're still looking to the West. They want to go to Harvard, you know. So, so you're you're talking about now a, something of an internal conflict within Chinese society over what place Chinese civilization should have. So, so is this by design? I mean, does it? It feels like you know there was a it was a necessary evil to adopt some aspects of capitalism, free market systems, trade in order to achieve a certain level of strength in order to then recapture their past. Does that sound about right? Or or is this just coincidental? We are where we are, and now in order to retain what it is to be Chinese, we need to recapture some of those early ideas of what it is to be Chinese. 
Uh, I think it's different on a government level on an individual level. Mm. I mean, I think on, on a government level, I think that the, you know, this is a government that's, that's looking for new sources of legitimacy and influence at home and, and abroad. And it is, it is latched on to uh, China's historic civilization and its influence that it had around the world and around the region as a way of, of rebuilding its power. That civilizational power was always a, the, the foundation of Chinese power, period. And, you know, when we look at East Asia, what's East Asia? East Asia, to a great degree, is a, is a Chinese cultural zone mm. where people share similar cultural aspects. They used to read the same, you know, books, Chinese texts. They used to write in Chinese characters. They adopted Chinese-style political systems, education systems. So the, the leadership is, is aware of the power that Chinese civilization had and would like to get it back. But Xi Jinping talks about the need for China to enhance its soft power all the time. What is he, this is exactly what he's talking about. Why did the government name its foreign language institutes around the world Confucius Institutes? That's, mm. that's not done by accident. Mm. Um, right. Uh, so that's the, the government idea. I think on an individual basis, it's, it's different, where now that traditional Chinese civilization has become acceptable again, you do have some people, I mean, I, it's impossible to know how many, it's probably still a small number, but you do have people who are, who are now feel comfortable looking back at their past, and they're, they're reading Confucian texts again, and their own, their own history, and they're, and they're, they're looking into this, this Chinese tradition the way that they have not and really have not been very much allowed to over you know recent decades. I, that, it's difficult to know where either of these trends are going. You know, in, in the course of your book, uh, you seem to suggest that uh, history is a tool with which we can decipher China's next move, its intentions. I, is that accurate? Because it's almost like a, a calibration on what we can see going forward. Am I getting that right? Well, I think there are certain patterns that you can find in Chinese history that can help us understand uh, what what China may do in the future in, in the world. I mean, we, we've we been asking ourselves, you know, for decades, what does China want? And we haven't really come up in the West with quite the right answer. I mean, there used to be this idea that, well, if we engage with China, China will turn into a democratic open society more like, we, more like in the West. That idea has basically been gotten pretty battered in recent years, and it looks like that's not the case. Uh, and now China's looking like something of a, of a geopolitical threat. So what does China want? And to, re- to a great degree, the answer is what China always had, which is, which is the, the, uh, standing as a great power that was, re- and was, that was recognized by the rest of the world as being a great power. And when you, what's interesting about Chinese history, when you you know, we're usually taught Chinese history as a series of dynasties. It's really not like that. One dynasty didn't automatically replace the old dynasty. They didn't all, all look alike. But there is an interesting repetition to Chinese history that is incredibly unusual, that after periods of decay and decline or conflict or invasion, the Chinese managed to rebuild their system over and over and over and over again. They rebuilt their power. And so when you look at Chinese history in that, in that perspective, what's going on today, 
looks quite familiar. Uh, yes, this isn't a dynasty. There's, there's, there's technically there's no emperor around, uh, but you can see this as being almost like another one of those imperial restorations that had happened over and over again, and where China is reasserting its power, re- reasserting itself in the region, you know, and the world around it. So, Michael, so, is your book a forensic for how to interpret what China wants and where it's headed? I, I, there are. There are some things that I think can really help us understand what China is going to do in the future. For, for instance, you know, one thing that I found extremely interesting uh, for my own research, which I didn't know, was how when China did restore its power, how it, it uh, uh, reasserted very similar political ideological concepts over and over, over and over and over again. And one of those concepts that we, we were talking about earlier was this idea of exceptionalism and also this idea of a hierarchy, that, of a hierarchy, that the world is a hierarchy. And this is an idea that started all the way back, you know, even before the Han Dynasty. But in, in terms of a system, uh, it was, you know, the Han Dynasty started forming a, a system of foreign relations. This is 2,000 years ago, in which China played this, this role. And each succeeding dynasty basically reasserted this ideology over and over and over again. And you, you can kind of see a certain extent that happening today. And what it tells us is that China likes to play by its own diplomatic rules. Uh, the Chinese were never particularly uh, thrilled when they had rules imposed on them, when they were weaker and they, they had to concede to different uh, political concepts and treaties and whatever from that were kind of forced upon them. They always like to reassert their own diplomatic system and order. And you can see that somewhat happening today, where China it looks incredibly uncomfortable operating within the Western world order. Uh, what their new system may look like is still kind of an open question. But it's, it's fairly clear that, that they don't want to play by the current rules of the game, that they did not write. And this is a recurring historical pattern. What about domestically? I mean, uh, in the, I think at one point you write, uh, good men earn thrones, bad men lose them. And, and that's the lesson of Chinese history, or at least how the Chinese write their history. The so-called mandate of heaven, is, is it still alive in the minds of the average Chinese citizen? And if so, how does this bode for Xi Jinping? I don't know if the concept, the specific concept, mandate of heaven is in the minds. I mean, it's not really, it's not really used you know, anymore. But... The the, uh, the the government works very very hard to present itself that that it has the right the moral right to rule here, right? That is that it is uh, uh, providing what China needs and what what the people want. When you look at the what is the Xi Jinping concept of the Chinese dream. What's the Chinese dream? It's an incredibly vague concept, actually. It's very, very hard to talk about. Mm. But it really boils down to uh, a, a great China again, uh, with uh, a rich, you know, um, happy society. Uh, and the Communist Party is going to go, going to, going to take China there. So whether they use mandate, the mandate of heaven language and the son of heaven language. Uh, they're they're seeing themselves and their relationship with their people and their ambitions for China 
in an extremely similar fashion, if not you, if not the actual not the actual concepts themselves. Mm. So, so to that degree, uh, how does the advent of the Ch- of the coronavirus outbreak confront uh, or or confound China's ambitions? Well, I think what's very interesting that's going on right now is is how how the Chinese are trying to use the coronavirus pandemic as a way to restore that civilizational power. Explain when that. You look at, when you look at the sources of Chinese power today, right, uh, the economy is strong again. They're using the, their economic power to build their political and diplomatic clout. Uh, they're, re- they're, they're spending a tremendous mo- amount of money refurbishing their military and upgrading their, their military capabilities. So what, what pillar of Chinese power is missing? That's a civilizational one, and that was always the most important. Because they haven't, re- you know, they, as we were talking about, you know, their own people basically still look very much to the West, to Western, entered Western movies, Western universities. So they, they need to reclaim their, their civilizational power, their soft power. And they're attempting to use this pandemic as proof that their system is superior. Uh, they're spending a lot of time the, the, here, like thought leaders in, in the media and the government and elsewhere, are spending a lot of time, uh, to actually, I'll use the word, mocking the U.S. Uh, over the, it's, you know, what, it sees, what the Chinese see as a failed American response, as well as in Europe. And then comparing it to their, their own, what they see as tremendous victory over the pandemic, and trying to make the point that, see, what we do here is, is better. So and, no, ignoring the fact that the actual um, COVID-19 arose in Wuhan at the outset and they weren't able to address or shut it down as early as they should, did they just ignore that fact and just celebrate in the fact that they defeated it as in a short-term war? war? Uh, exactly. Mm. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I'm not saying the narrative is accurate. Uh, this is a narrative that they're that they're attempting to sell. They may or may not be able to sell it, but that is exactly the narrative. Which is, this is why they also spent a tremendous amount of time trying to deflect blame and responsibility for their role in the outbreak. That's mm-hmm. why they're they're pointing fingers at the U.S. Oh, well, maybe maybe the virus came from the U.S. You know, there's no evidence it actually started in, in Wuhan which is also part of the narrative. So they're trying to shift blame, which actually a lot of countries are, are doing right now. But, it's, it's, but more than that, on top of that, they're taking this extra step. And they're not just trying to blame other, other countries. They're trying to basically say, well, see, we were able to handle this crisis better. And uh, the, this, is, this, is, this basically shows that the, the, the Great West is in decline. There was an actual editorial kind of commentary in the Global Times yesterday on this very, very point uh, that the, that the, the, the diplomats of the, of the West have had this loss of stat, loss of stature because of how the West is handling the, the uh, pandemic. So they're, they're trying to use this pandemic as a way of, of reasserting their own power but more specifically, reasserting their the power of what they see as their superior civilization and system. So thinking back on the premise of your book, 
that all we need to know about China is the way they've operated over 4,000 years. Can, are they acting out now in a way that would have been expected? That's actually a really interesting question. I mean, we, we, it's hard to know because I don't, I don't know when the world had a pandemic like this last. But I think they're also today missing some of the lessons of their own history. Um, you know, we, we in the West tend to see the, the Chinese diplomatic system, which is often called the tribute system, though I don't use that term uh, in my book, um, because the Chinese didn't use that term. Um, we, we tend to see it in very negative terms, that you had, you know, all of these kind of shaking, quaking ambassadors from around the region coming and kowtowing before the Chinese emperor and, and submitting to Chinese overlordship. Uh, there were aspects of the ceremony that were a little like that, but that's, that's not actually what was going on in, in real life. And it was really a, a much more of a balanced diplomatic system uh, that most of the other societies in Asia actually bought into. Uh, it, was, it was basically the rules of the game. We talked about earlier about the rules of the game. Well, the Chinese diplomatic system was the rules of the game. And in, in that system, the Chinese could be surprisingly flexible. Yes, there were times when they, they would kind of try to dictate to their vassals in ways they didn't like so much. Uh, for example, there was a Ming emperor... Who, uh, who was extracting young Korean girls from uh, the, the, the uh, Korean uh, dynasty uh, for, his own, for, for his, his own palace, and the Koreans really did not like it very much. Um, but there's also all kinds of other examples when, when the Chinese could be incredibly flexible and, and quite generous. I mean, it was... If you're the son of son of heaven, you have to be above all other all other rulers. So that meant that yes, all these other kingdoms were bringing you tribute, but you had to be more generous. So you actually, so, so the Chinese court actually used to give gifts that were surpassed in value anything that that, that that they received. They actually ran something of like a royal trade deficit or royal tribute deficit um, when they had disputes with their neighbors. Uh, if, if they had, these were like basically vassals in good standing, uh, they could be very, very easy going with them. There's a case in the 18th century when the Vietnamese actually grabbed some Chinese land. They, they went over the border and they, they wanted to get access to some mines and they grabbed, they grabbed some Chinese territory. And the, uh, the Qing dynasty actually compromised with them and left some of that land in Vietnamese control. Um, so I think this, cooperative nature of the, of the way Chinese foreign policy actually worked has somewhat been lost on, on the current leadership. And they'd, they'd be better off studying their, their previous system a little bit more carefully and looking at why it worked and why other societies were willing to go along with it. So based on your research, Michael, what, what are the prospects for detente, or at least a calming of relations between uh, the United States and China in, in the, the months and years to come? I'd actually say they are good. I mean, I don't get into this idea that these, these, two, these two countries are, are, are inevitably going to end up in a war or a cold war. Uh, but in, this is increasingly going to be an, an ideological uh, conflict. And I, I think that's something that's not, not completely fully understood. That, you know, the, the idea of, 
of engaging with China was to make them a, a partner in the current world system. But it's becoming increasingly clear that that they don't really want to be a part of that system, uh, at least not entirely. And increasingly, they're going to try to be asserting their own diplomatic rules, their own rules about trade, their own uh, their own their own uh, way of dealing with their with their neighbors and the world around them. And I don't think that's going to to change. So it, it feels to me that the U.S. and China are increasingly going to be grading on on each other, and to a certain extent, it's it's a it's a battle of systems where the U.S. is going to want to maintain, despite what's going on in Washington, at least a certain degree of kind of the U.S.-led global system, and the Chinese are going to be resisting it and trying to assert their own system, whatever that that will shape up to to look like. And I I don't really know how exactly that that changes. Well, it feels like like the discussion has gone a little bit more private and not so public in the wake of uh, COVID-19. But uh, I suspect you're right. We're going to see a resurgence of these tensions. I, I guess the best thing people could do is read your book and tell us when that would be available. When is it for sale? Uh, thanks. Uh, the book is actually out June 9th. You can you can pre-order it uh, on, on Amazon. Uh, there's also a you know a Kindle version, of course, and another ebook version, which is a little easier to get your hands on these days. Uh, but uh, with everything uh, going on, um, and um, yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for doing this. You're most welcome, Michael. It's a pleasure. I we wish you great success. And uh, how about a website or a blog? Are you active on Twitter? Uh, I am active on Twitter. My, my handle is, is at Michael Schumann. And Michael, we will be following you, and thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. That was my conversation with Michael Schumann, journalist, author, historian. His forthcoming book, Superpower Interrupted, suggests that China's historical attitude could prove a powerful predictor for future behavior. Over the past 70-plus years, communist rhetoric has served its purpose, flushing the system of old thinking to make way for the new. In the late 70s, Deng Xiaoping famously introduced socialism with Chinese characteristics as a means of justifying a degree of market economics. That let loose one of the greatest periods of economic expansion the world has ever seen. China catapulted to number one in manufacturing, exports, e-commerce, and car production. The list goes on. Today, the Middle Kingdom is a force to be reckoned with. The means, some believe, have justified the ends. And if bending a few definitions on what it is to be communist is the price to pay, so be it. Now there's a new narrative afoot, and it sounds like the rekindling of a dynastic order. Promulgated by its leaders, pride in the past is to some degree in competition with more complacent communist rhetoric. Whether this is a carefully orchestrated plan to reframe China as a country reestablishing its rightful place, or a bubbling up of cultural pride is difficult to say. Increasingly, writes Schumann, the communist regime is morphing into a new kind of dynasty. This raises an interesting question. If indeed China sees itself this way, it doesn't mean the rest of the world has to agree. Superpower status comes with certain expectations, not least of which is the ability to reshape the world order. Rome gave us aqueducts, a system for law and order, and the concept of state-sponsored military. The United States gave us federalism, public schools, and reality TV. What will China's big contribution be? Roads and bridges? 
advanced manufacturing perhaps, or will it be COVID-19? This narrative is a work in progress. Want to learn more about China, its history, and its prospects? Check out Superpower Interrupted, available June 9th on Amazon or wherever you shop for books. That brings us to the end of this episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed it. What's your take on China in a time of coronavirus? Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Leave us a message or start a discussion. If you don't subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast, please do by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or download any or all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And lastly, if you can't find time to listen, please do subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom, enter your name and email address, and start receiving our updates. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.